All right, well, welcome to church. Um, we're, today we're going to begin a new series um, called Made To Dot, Dot, Dot. And so we'll tack on whatever that means every week. We're going to start um, with the focus of you were made to receive God's love. Made to receive God's love is part one. And we'll build on that. Um, so I'm going to talk about that today. I am convinced that most Christians struggle to receive the fullness of the love of God that God has for them. Um, I believe many Christians, oftentimes, they're not good at giving love because they're not good at receiving love. If you want to be a good giver of love, you have to be a good receiver of love. Um, an illustration I like to use is a fountain. A fountain has tears, right? Um, in order for it to uh, overflow to the world around it, right? The top tier has to be filled and then the next tier and then the next tier. Um, this is a great picture of what it's like in our lives to, to light up the world with the love of Jesus around us. We have to first receive the love of God. I can assure you that you can do a lot of great things for God. You can receive his goodness. But if you don't, um, if you don't live in a place of perpetual receiving of God's love, you're headed for burnout. Uh, many believers are not able to sustain a perpetual outflow, overflow, because they're not good at receiving a perpetual inflow. Okay, And we all go through seasons where we do better with this and where we don't do better with this. Okay. Uh, many Christians struggle with this. There are many reasons. Um, it can be guilt. It can be shame. It can be fear. It can be condemnation. It can be just by virtue of the fact that you're not positioning yourself uh, on a daily basis or a weekly basis to receive the love of God and understand God's love. Listen, we're humans. We are created to thrive on the love that God has for us. Okay, so I want to talk about God's love in this first message. This is God's love. God's kind of love is agape love. There's several different uh, words uh, in the Greek language to talk about love. Agape love is the God kind of love. It is the transcendent, preeminent, sacrificial love. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about. So I have two points in my sermon today. Um, didn't have room to even do a third point, but I'm going to go over two points today. Point number one is that this love that we're talking about Point number one is beyond human comprehension. Okay, now it's important for us to know that. It's beyond our intellectual ability to understand God's love. This is important for us to know because if you try to figure out God and figure out his love and figure out his will for you all with your head, you're never going to figure it out with just your intellectual understanding. Why? Because your intellectual understanding has limits, okay? Um, realize God's love goes beyond that, we cannot wrap our finite brains around it. Um, we're going to look at Ephesians 3, and we'll, we'll, I'll read the whole portion here, and then we'll pick it apart a little bit. Uh, Ephesians 3, 16, 19, this is Paul. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the uh, measure of all the fullness of Christ. I love the book of Ephesians. What a juicy portion of scripture. That's like... 
a juicy steak right there, medium rare. You know what I'm saying? Dry aged, medium rare steak, okay? That's Ephesians for you. It's not, it's not, this isn't milk, okay? Okay, what is our goal? Our goal is that, as Paul prayed, he prays that we be rooted and established in love. Here's the deal. As Christians, as believers, it is possible to have our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, to receive the free gift of salvation. It's possible to be heaven-bound, but have no idea the depth of the love he has for us. It's possible to be a Christian and do great things, but, but never fully tap into what God has for us in terms of his love. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you are anchored in God's love for you. And God wants us to be anchored in his love. Paul says this, I want you to be rooted and established in this. Okay, verse 18, he says, um, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, verse 18, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how, how deep um, is the love of Christ, okay? The word grasp there, it's, it's the word, uh, in the Greek, it's the word katalambano. Uh, Everyone say katalambano. Congratulations, you are Greek scholars now, as, as we all are, okay? This is what it means, the grasp. It means to take hold of exactly, with decisive intent, with eager self-interest, to grasp something with, in a forceful manner, um, to apprehend or to comprehend and making it one's own. Okay, when it comes to the love of God, we need to forcefully take hold of the love of God and never relinquish it, never let go of it. Once you get a revelation of God's love for you, never let go of it. Go of it. I can assure you the enemy of your soul would want you to, 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 to let go of that. Um, I've been a Christian for a while, um, but I'm talking to people who've maybe been Christians for 40, 50 years and people who've been Christians for four days. Um, this is important for all of us. If you receive a revelation, you, an understanding of the love of God, we need to firmly hold on to that, firmly lay hold of that. I can say in my own life, there are times where I have relaxed that grip on that revelation that God gave me of his love and, and I've suffered for it. I've suffered for it. So when you receive this thing, never let go of it. Now, um, Notice it says here to grab hold of it with um, decisive intent, with eager self-interest. Eager self-interest. There's not many times in the Bible where you can find anything where the Bible says to have eager self-interest, right? Um, right? The Bible says to prefer one another. The Bible says submit to one another, forgive one another. Like we're always supposed to be coming under and being less, Right? Um, and here the Bible says it's okay to be a little selfish. Why? Because you actually need to be selfish in this regard. God knows that you and I need to have this eager self-interest to, to grasp, to lay hold of an understanding of God's love for us. Okay, let me give you an example of this. Um, how many know that when you're on an airplane and you lose cabin pressure, the oxygen mass drop from the ceiling, what do they tell you to do first? They, they say, put your oxygen mask on first, and then you'll be able to help other people. You're no good to any other people if you're passed out on the floor, right? This is the same thing with the love of God. As Christians, you can go save the world, do all kinds of great things for him, but I can assure you, if you don't 
get your oxygen mask on and receive the love of Jesus, you are on a road for burnout. You're on a road for burnout. You're just trying to serve God, love God, do all these great things, but you aren't a good receiver of his love. You're on a road for burnout. Um, as a pastor, I'm, I'm, in a, in a, I'm in a lot of meetings. This is a meeting right now. I'm leading this meeting. I mean, there are other people leading this meeting with me, but I'm in a lot of meetings that I'm leading. And so I'm always thinking about what's next and is this good, is this good, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there comes a point in, in worship when I sense the spirit of God, it's like, I have to get this for me. Like, I need this for me. And I'm just gonna kind of forget about what's going on in the room and I have to connect with the Lord. Um, years ago, uh, my wife and I, when we were college pastors, we would, we would lead these young adult camps. We'd go up to Steamboat and take, you know, 40, 50 young adults with us. And they were a good time, right? right? Greg, Greg and, and the Snyders, and they were with us. And, and um, the Grinnemans were with us doing those things. And again, I'm on point. I'm leading a meeting. And there were points, though, that I can remember where the presence of God is so thick, so good, it's like, I don't care what else is happening in the room. I need to put my oxygen mask on. I need to get a breath of it. I need to experience the presence of Jesus for myself. Why? Because if I don't do this, I'm not going to be good to anyone else, okay? This is the same with us. We start with, um, we start with receiving, this is what my message is on today, receiving God's love first. We're not talking about reciprocity. We're not even talking about giving it, giving it back to God. We're talking about being good receivers. A lot of Christians are bad at giving love because they're bad at receiving love. Okay, there are some things we can do to enhance our ability and our capacity to receive. All right, so Ephesians 3.19, he says this, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge in order that you could be filled with the measure of fullness of God. It says that the love of God passes our, our finite ability to understand. The Bible says that there's a peace that passes understanding, right? You can be going through a situation that doesn't look peaceful and have peace. Well, that's peace that passes understanding. Why? God's giving you something supernatural to go through that season. The same thing with the love of God. There's the love of God which surpasses our ability to comprehend and understand. Um, the word um, surpasses here in the Greek, it's the word hyperbalo. It's from two other Greek words, um, from hyper, which means beyond and above, and balo, which means to throw. I also studied this out a little bit, and the word uh, balo is where we get the word ball. You know, so, but here's what it means. It means to throw beyond, okay? To throw beyond, um, surpassing, transcending, to excel, to exceed. Um, so I want to illustrate this. Go ahead and toss that up to me. Okay. Let's see here. Um, all right. We'll do, we'll, we'll use Evie, my daughter here. Go ahead and stand up. Okay. So this is an illustration of the person who's trying to grasp, trying to comprehend God's love with their intellectual capacity. Okay. I'm going to throw the ball to you. Is that cool? You're going to catch it. You ready? <laughs> okay. Well, what happened? Why didn't you catch it? <laughs> I made up in the balcony again. Yay. Um, okay. Why wasn't she able to catch it? What? Cause I threw it beyond her. It was beyond her ability to catch it. I threw it over her. Okay. This is, um, this is a good illustration of what it's like to comprehend and perceive the love of God with our finite brains. It's simply beyond us. Paul's prayer though is that we would have the power to grasp God's love. So how do we grasp something that we don't have the intellectual capacity to grasp? Okay, 
How are we supposed to grasp it? Well, not with our intellect, obviously. Okay, here's the deal. This is how you have to catch it. You have to catch it by revelation. Your heart will take you places that your head can't fit. Okay, we have a lot of heady Christians. They got a lot of knowledge. But listen, if you want to be a good lover, you want to be a good receiver of God's love and a, and a, and a good giver, your heart has to be bigger than your head. Um, so I have, an, I have a video that I want to play to illustrate this point. So go ahead and roll that video. That's a good picture of a lot of Christians. They're trying to enter in. They're trying to come close to the Lord. They're trying to experience his love, but their head's getting in the way. Why? Because their head can't take them places that their heart can take them. Um, so what do we need? We need a revelation. We need a supernatural revelation of the love of God. Um, you can't enter in with just your, your intellectual capacity. This is, a, this is a, a book about faith, right? Yes, there are some amazing facts here, and I love that what we believe. I do believe it lines up to facts. But there, at the end of the day, it's also a faith thing. We're not on a fact walk. We're on a faith walk with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Um, recently, my, my brother was telling me that he had an MRI on his, on his head. And he told me that the doctor said that he has a good-looking brain. It's like, the doctor said a good-looking brain. And I said, well, don't let that go to your head. And then he told me, the doctor said that you were going to say that. So don't let it go to your head, all right? Your heart can take you places. Your intellectual capacity cannot. This love that we're talking about passes our intellectual understanding. It's important for us to realize that because if you want to experience the fullness of Jesus, you're not going to do it with just this. You have to do it with this, amen? Okay, that's point number one. God's love is beyond human comprehension. Point number two, though, I want us to get this as well today. God's love for you is a secure love. It's a secure love. It's a firm love that God has for you. It's not wishy-washy, up and down. God is not um, unstable. God is stable. God is steady, okay? One of the most exhilarating experiences of the human heart is to be secure in God's love for you. His love is steady for us. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He's not shifty. He's not flip-floppy. He, he doesn't shun you for having a bad day. His love for you is consistent. His love for you is steady. Okay, And here's the deal. God wants you to feel that security. He wants you to feel that love and to feel, feel that security. Why? Because it produces really good things in our, in our uh, lives. It's like when you're in a marriage, we've made a covenant with one another. We've made a commitment to one another. What does that mean? That means if I have a bad day, my wife's not gone and vice versa, right? Okay, we're in a covenant relationship 
uh, with, with, with our Heavenly Father. And if we don't have a perfect day, he's not gone. He's not, his love for you is steady. His love for you is secure. And the Bible says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. God wants bold children that can come before him in that throne of grace. This is his will for you. Okay, so now we're going to jump over to 1 John chapter 4. And we'll, I want to unpack some of this as well. This is some, some good stuff here. And it's the Bible. It's not Pastor Kurt. This is the Bible, okay? 1 John 4, uh, 16 and 18. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us. Now, before I say how it is made complete among us, or actually what that entails, I want to say that that is what the goal is, is that love would be made complete among us and in us. Paul, the Apostle Paul, we just read in Ephesians, he put it like this, I pray that you'd be rooted and established in love. I, I pray that you wouldn't be all over the place. You'd be rooted and established in this love. Okay, what does that look like? First uh, uh, John 4, 16 and 18. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Okay, know and rely on that love. Not just know it, rely on it. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment. Confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears has not been made perfect in love. Okay, I can honestly say, that I don't live my life perfectly without any source of fear before my heavenly father. In other words, my, my uh, capacity to love and my understanding of love, my revelation of love has room to grow. God actually wants us to have confidence on the day of judgment. Now, um, I want to take a few minutes to, to kind of unpack, unpack this. It says here, fear has to do with punishment. I want to make a bold statement but it's also a true statement, and I'll back this up. Here's the statement. If you're a Christian, you're a believer, that is, your sins are under the blood of Jesus, you will never be punished for your sins. Amen? If you're under the blood of Jesus, you'll never be punished for your sins. Um, convicted, perhaps. You know, the Holy Spirit does convict. When we don't live right, we're doing things we know we shouldn't do, the Holy Spirit convicts us. When you became saved, you didn't, you didn't uh, lose the capacity to sin, unfortunately, right? How many, how, many, how many know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm saying? You didn't lose the ability to sin, but you did kind of lose the ability to enjoy it, right? <laughs> it kind of ruins sin for you. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to indulge in that thing and it's great. And then afterwards you're like, no, you know, you're not, you don't feel good about yourself. What is that? That's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. However, that is not the same thing um, as punishment. That's not his punishment. Okay. Your sins have been paid for by Jesus. You will never be punished for them. Not in this life, not in the next life. Here's the deal. If you fear punishment, that is you fear rejection from God or you fear you're being thrown in hell, separated from him forever, and you're a Christian, you have not been perfected in God's love. Okay? First John 14, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears has not been made perfect in love. If you fear rejection by God and you fear hell and separation from him, you've not been made perfect in love. Now, 
I'm talking to Christians, okay? If you're a Christian, if you're not a believer, um, it's the goodness of God that draws us to repentance, of course, but you should fear hell because hell is actually a real place. But as a Christian, if our sins are under the blood of Jesus, in other words, he paid for them, we should never fear rejection by God and we should never fear being cast out from him. And I can honestly say, as a pastor, I stand up here saying, I have room in my own heart, I have room in my own life to grow in the revelation of God's love for me because I can't say 100% of the time. I know theologically it's true. Like, Jesus paid for my sins. But how many know that condemnation can still creep, creep up every once in a while and you feel like, oh, God's rejecting me, okay? I say this as a pastor, realizing that my revelation of love has room for improvement, Maybe some of you are beyond that. Maybe some of you, your revelation of God's love for you is even greater than what I have. <clears throat> so you'll never be punished for your sin. You'll never be rejected for your sin. Now, someone might ask this question, Pastor Kurt, aren't we supposed to have the fear of the Lord? The Bible talks about the fear of the Lord. And the answer to that is yes, we are supposed to have a healthy reverence for God. There is a, I've talked about this a little bit before, there is a judgment for the believer, Okay, there's, there's two types of judgments. There's the great, great white throne of judgment. Um, that's the judgment that unbelievers stand before. And then there's a judgment for believers, and that's the bema seat. That's the rewarder seat of Jesus. And so he, he, he does judge us, but not according to our sin. He judges, judges us according to um, our potential that we should have lived up to or did not live up to. And because he's a rewarder, he's a good father, he, re, he does give rewards to his children. There, are, there is something true about heavenly rewards. Um, and it's possible to suffer loss in that regard. Paul talks about this in other places in scripture. Um, it's possible to feel a sense of loss of reward, but that's not the same thing as being punished for our sins. Does this make sense? Um, okay, so having the fear of the Lord is good too. To understand that there is a day of, of God uh, judging me according to what I should or should not have done as a believer, that's, that is coming and there's a reward coming. That is the fear of the Lord. That is a healthy reverence. You should have a healthy reverence for God. You shouldn't just be, I've got grace and I'm going to live any way I want. I don't care. Okay, I, I would question your salvation if you live like that. If you live your whole life and don't really care, and I'm just going to send it up because God took care of it. I question your conversion experience at that point. So a healthy reverence for the Lord is good, the fear of the Lord. But fear of being rejected by God and being punished by God and cast out from him is something completely different altogether. Okay? The Lord does discipline those whom he loves. He does discipline his children, but he doesn't punish us. I want to take a few minutes and help you see help you distinguish these two things. He does discipline his children. He doesn't punish us. Um, what is the difference? Okay, so we'll start with Isaiah 53. This is in the Old Testament. This is before Jesus came, but it's talking about Jesus. This is what Jesus would do for us. So I don't know how long Isaiah was written before Jesus actually came, maybe a thousand years or so. But this is prophesying of the coming Messiah. It says this, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay? 
Here's the point. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, for my sin, for the sins of the entire world with his own blood on the cross. Undoubtedly, the greatest expression of love that has ever happened in the history of the universe is when Jesus laid down his life and paid that penalty for you and I. That was the greatest expression of love. That's what happened. He took the punishment, okay? Okay, what about discipline? Okay, does God discipline us? Yes, he disciplines us. And uh, I'm going to read a portion of scripture here in Hebrews. Um, And sometimes God's discipline for us looks like, oh, you're going the wrong way. Here's a course correction, right? Oh, that's not good. Let's correct you. And other times it looks like training, right? When you, when you, uh, you have a basketball team, you have to train them and you have to train them how to shoot. And if they don't shoot right or not dribbling right, what do you do? You correct them, you discipline them. It's not like they're in trouble, but you're correcting them. So there's two types of discipline here that the Lord does work in the life of the believer. And thank God for that. Hebrews 12, four through 11. So there's a big chunk of scripture here I'm gonna read. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son or daughter. Verse seven, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we, have all, uh, we all have human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? See, that's what he's pointing to. He's pointing to life for us. Verse 10, they, speaking of our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Okay, key word here is trained. God's discipline trains us. Again, sometimes that's because we went off course and he has to discipline us to get back on course. Or he just is training, training for reigning, right? We're, we're supposed to reign in life, as it says in, in the book of Romans. Um, so what does training look like? Sometimes it's correction. Sometimes it's just him training us for reigning. Um, if, if you're a disciplined person, what are some things that disciplined people do? Disciplined people, uh, they set their alarm and they get up early. They eat the right foods. They exercise. Uh, disciplined people go to class to get their degree. They disciplined people live on a budget, Right? Disciplined people understand deferred gratification. Disciplined people are careful with their words. They don't just say everything that they think about, right? <laughs> That's discipline. Okay. Uh, how about this? How does a coach train an athlete? Through disciplines, learning fundamentals, learning disciplines of that sport. How do parents train children to become autonomous, respectful, loving adults? through disciplines, through an atmosphere of love, of course, and through disciplines. This is what a good father does for their children. A good father does not leave a child to themselves, to him or herself, okay? A good father, a good parent, sees the value 
of their child. They so value that child that when they see that child going the wrong direction, they're not going to be silent. That's not love. If you see your child going the wrong direction and you don't say anything, you're communicating you don't love them, right? The discipline, the correction, is not because you hate them. It's because you love them. And this is what Father God does to us. Many times he disciplines us. However, again, this is different than punishment. Punishment is what Jesus took upon himself on the cross. Does this make sense? He disciplines us. But for God, for our relationship with the Lord, fear of rejection and condemnation are off the table. These are not tools that God uses. He doesn't use fear of rejection from him, and he doesn't use condemnation. I'm going to cast you out as tools. Yes, conviction. Conviction is like, oh, you've done wrong, and now I need to lead you right back. Okay? Does it make sense to you? I say all this to say the eyes of the Lord are favorably looking upon you. Are favorably looking upon you. When God sees you, he sees you with favor. Even in your immaturity, even in your shortcomings, he sees you with favor. Here's the deal. Jesus experienced rejection that we might experience acceptance. Um, Jesus, of course, was rejected by men. It says in, in the Bible that the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the, the chief cornerstone or the capstone. Um, Jesus was rejected by men, but Jesus also, for a moment, on the cross, experienced what it was like for the Father to turn away from him. He experienced that rejection for but a moment on the cross. I want to read this verse to you. Matthew 27, 45 and 46. So Jesus is on the cross. He's not dead yet. It says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So for that brief moment, Jesus felt that God had turned away and, and he had felt forsaken. That wasn't because God's mad at Jesus. That was because he felt that rejection. He felt um, cast out so that you and I would never have to feel cast out. He became our representation in that moment. So that you and I, because God doesn't want you to feel that for a second. He doesn't, never wants you to feel that the, 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 um, the glory of his face has turned away from you. Okay, The face of the Father is favorably fixed upon you all the time. Some, some people might say that the opposite of love is hate. I would actually say that's not true. I think the opposite of love is actually indifference. Just, nah, I don't care. I think that's the opposite of love. Even though many believers would say that their perception of God is, yeah, God loves me. They know that intellectually, but in their minds and in their hearts, maybe they feel that God is indifferent towards them or aloof towards them. Um, maybe they feel like the perception that God has for them is disgust or disappointment. Have you ever felt that before? It's not true, but have you ever felt that before? <clears throat> I want to perhaps illustrate that the way that we live our lives is partially um, because of the way we perceive God. If we perceive his face shining upon us, loving us, glad over us, rejoicing over us, we're going to live differently than if we perceive God as like this. 
stoic, disappointed, disgusted. Aren't, are we not going to live differently? Imagine living in a household like that, where your father's always stoic, disappointed, disgusted. I want to play a little video to help illustrate this point. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the still face experiment, but scientists wanted to know at what point do babies, are they able to interact and understand facial expressions? Um, so understanding the difference between someone who's interactive or someone who is being stoic. So go ahead and roll that video. Babies this young are extremely responsive to the emotions and the reactivity and the social interaction that they get from the world around them. This is something that we started studying oh, 30, 40 years ago when people didn't think that infants could engage in social interaction. In the still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. I'm like a girl. Oh, and yeah. she gives a greeting to the baby, the baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this, and then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. baby's feeling the stress, feeling this pressure, because the baby is able to perceive the stoic face of this mother. I believe a lot of Christians live, and this is how they think God's face is towards them, that God is just stoic, he's withdrawn, he's disappointed, he has disgust for you, and you act out the way that you perceive God is. A lot of people, I think they don't have a sin problem, they have a perception of God problem. You're acting out, trying to figure out who you are because you're not seeing it in the face of your creator. Here's the deal. When God the Father sees you, he sees you through the blood of Jesus. In other words, he sees you like he sees Jesus. If you're a Christian, you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He doesn't see you through all of your shortcomings. He sees you through the blood of Jesus. Does the father correct us? Does he guide us? Of course he does, but he doesn't do it with a look of disgust. He does it with 
anticipation of love. He loves you. He's engaged with you. He's, he's doing life with you. Let me ask you a question. How much does the Father love Jesus? A whole lot. How much does the Father approve of Jesus? A lot. Listen, you too, just like Jesus, are that pure, spotless one because of what the blood of Jesus did for us. You, the, you are the son or daughter whom he loves that he is well pleased. Even in your weakness and in your immaturity, God does not just tolerate you. He doesn't just tolerate you. God loves you. He's not just putting up with you. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> At what age... If you waited for your kids to become mature before you enjoyed them, at what age would that happen? <laughs> 200, right? Yeah. I was, in last service, I was like, yeah, if you wait till they're 18, I was like, well, that's for sure not full maturity there, you know. God's not waiting for you to arrive before he loves you and enjoys you. He enjoys you at every stage of your relationship with him, from in, uh, infancy all the way through the stages of life which is so amazing. Even in your weakness and in your maturity, he loves us. Just like you enjoy that baby when it can't do anything for itself. That's where babies are at, right? They're only able to receive. And then you get to another age where there's some interaction and some reciprocity. And as we grow and mature in the Lord, of course, God expects a little bit more out of us, but he enjoys us in every stage. He enjoys you on your good days. He enjoys you on your bad days even in your weakness and your maturity. Numbers 6, 24 through 26. This is a benediction. This is a blessing that they spoke over one another. It says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God's face is ever turned towards you. His face is ever shining on you. He doesn't have the look of disgust and indifference. You were made to receive this love. And just like that baby, what did that baby do to deserve? Did that baby do anything to deserve mom's love and affection? No. Neither have us. Neither did we. We didn't do anything to earn or deserve God's love, but he gives it to us anyway. If we want to be good at loving this world, loving people around us, we have to start with being good receivers. And we'll talk about reciprocity and other things we're created to do, but we have to start here. We have to start with just drinking in and receiving the love of the Father for us. I'm gonna pray and then we'll close. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for what you did for us to reconcile us back to the Father. I just pray for every person here, Lord, that we would not see you as the stoic, disgusted, annoyed one, Lord, but that your face is shining upon us to be gracious to us, to grant us peace and your favors upon us, Lord. So we just thank you for that today. I pray not just that this wouldn't just be information today, but a, um, a supernatural revelation of the heart, Lord. We thank you. You're a good father. You do guide us. You do lead us, but you're always for us. We love you. Thank you for today. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen.